Hey, thanks for listening to the RUF Tulsa podcast. This semester, we're having our students get up and read the passage before I preach, and I do not have that recorded. So every week, you'll hear me, and it will sound a little bit differently, reading the passage myself on a separate recording before transitioning to the sermon. Tonight's passage is Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. In the last first, this is the reading of God's word. So as you see, uh, the, the sermon is titled, we've looked at Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel, a skeptic. Um, two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' encounter with a, like a really morally upright dude, Nicodemus. Um, and then last week, we looked at Jesus' encounter with an outcast, a Samaritan woman. Um, and tonight, we're looking at an, uh, an encounter that Jesus has with a man who really earnestly um, desires to be a disciple of Jesus. And, and here's what I want your takeaway to be. Um, I want you to know that the good life comes from, spoiler alert, um, our discipleship with Jesus. The good life comes from our discipleship to Jesus. Our discipleship to Jesus has a cost. That's what we're going to look at first, um, giving him everything. But our discipleship to Jesus also has a great reward, receiving back a hundredfold. A good life comes from your discipleship to Jesus. You know, the word disciple is used in the New Testament 269 times. I counted them all today. I flipped through. It took me like three hours. Um, No, I didn't do that. Um, In comparison, the word Christian is used three times. And every time the word Christian is used, it just is is used to to mean disciple of Christ, Christian. Um, Disciples are Christians. And so what what does this word disciple mean? Um, It's the same word for discipline. 
And so I want you to think with me for a second of a really undisciplined kid, and you're not allowed to think of my kids. Um, I know Maggie and I are tempted to do that. Um, we try our best. But when you think of an undisciplined kid, you think of someone with, like, what, terrible behavior who will never make it in life. Um, no one who wants no, – no friend wants to be around an undisciplined kid because they have anger outrages, they're super annoying, they're arrogant, they're self-obsessed. They get kicked out of school because they're rude and disrespectful to their teachers. So discipline, to discipline someone is to actually love someone. It's to be kind to them. To discipline someone is to help someone have a good life. And so we're going to go slow here because I don't want you to miss this. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Christ. And to be a disciple of Christ is to be disciplined by Christ. And through Christ's discipline of us, it's for our good, and we are formed and changed so that we might have a good life. All right? That's the premise. And when I say good, um, I know what's going through your mind are probably uh, a dozen or so concepts of what good means that are mainly formed around culture. So hold those loosely as we think about this. Um, and, and in fact, it's funny, literally the only time I've used uh, the, the, uh, the PowerPoint slides tonight is tonight that this isn't working. I've got a few things to show in here. So as you've noticed, I'll play it and then it will die and then I'll turn it on and we'll play something else. Um, but, but before we do jump in and talk about this passage, I want to show you this chart, which I think will actually help you understand how you view Jesus as one who disciplines or disciples you. Because this, this passage, as we just read, um, it's kind of a mic drop. It's kind of a, a hard word for us to hear. And so we first even need to ask ourselves before we look at it, are you even willing to hear it? And so here's the chart. Um, Jesus as our discipler, okay? Jesus is good to us. He is kind to us to disciple us in two ways. This is a, a two-by-two chart. To be both warm and compassionate. To come, and as we looked at last week, to sit by our side and meet us in our sorrow and our grief. To meet us in our hurt. He has warmth about him and he has compassion about him. But he also is firm and truthful. He brings conviction to your heart. And to be a kind disciplinarian, to be a kind discipler, you got to be firm and truthful and warm and compassionate. Now, many of you see Jesus as warm and compassionate with no firmness and no authority and no truth. And that's just an indulgent Jesus who disciples you. He's like the old grandmother who bakes you cookies and meets you when you're sad. But he's not going to be firm with you. And the minute you think he's being firm and might be onto something, might actually be interested in redirecting your life. No, no, no we got to get away from that Jesus. And some of you are up here. And only see Jesus as firm and truthful. And, and, and in fact, you're reading this passage and you're thinking to yourself right now, I hope other people hear this. You see Jesus as an authoritarian discipler. Um, he's, there's no warmth about him, no compassion about him. He's out to get you. He's a taskmaster, as is described in a parable um, in, in one of the Gospels. And if you don't see him as warm nor compassionate, if you don't see him as truthful and firm, then he's essentially absent and has no use in your life. And maybe some of you are there. 
And here's a conviction that I hold about Christian discipleship. And this is the summary that the story of Jesus' encounter with the rich man will teach us. That those of you in this room who view Jesus as merely useful to your life, you will inevitably walk away. Those who are in this room holding on to this vision of your life, holding on to this dream and career, holding on to this successful, wealthy, comfortable, beautiful American dream, holding on to your close friends on campus and holding tight to your image and your identity. If you're just holding on to these things and hoping that you can find a way for Jesus to fit into your plan, that he can put his stamp of approval on your desired outcome, you're going to walk away. And you've significantly understood what discipleship to Jesus means. You know, a few months ago, I, I bought a house. We moved uh, closer to campus, and I went to a bank. Because when you sign important documents, you have to go somewhere where there's a notary. And they watch you sign it, and then they stamp their approval. Jesus is not a notary. Just standing by, watching you live your life, giving you a rubber stamp of approval. He's kinder than that. He's actually good. If Jesus is just a notary to you, you will walk away. But those who view him as kind, those who are willing to listen to his firm and truthful words, who are brought about by uh, in repentance, are convicted by his spirit, those who have experienced and have been captivated by the warmth and compassion of him, you will follow him forever. Because to go back to this chart, Jesus is both a lion, truthful, firm, someone to be feared, someone to be in awe of, majestic and powerful. And Jesus is a lamb, compassionate, tender, someone who draws near, someone who knows your hurt, humble. And what the lion and the lamb does for all of us is he calls us to lay down our life and follow him. And there's two points as we look at this. What's the cost of that and what's the benefit of it? To the cost of, of discipleship. Um, pretty often I'm, I'm on campus and I'll, uh, you can ask my wife this, I'll, I'll leave things behind, right? So I'll go, I'll, you know, whether that's at home and I get a mile down the road and realize I forgot my phone or I'm on campus and I'm walking to Einstein to get a coffee and I realize I left my, my wallet, uh, in the office. At that point, um, when I'm going to pay for the coffee and I don't have my wallet, I have two options. I can steal the coffee or I can go find a presidential co- uh, a scholar and have them pay for it, right? No, there's two options. I can either go back to my office and then come back and get the coffee or just go back to my office and, and stay in my office. And in that moment, this is a silly example, but in that moment, you know what wins the day? What I want the most. Do I want to save the energy and just say, screw it, I'm not going back? Or do I want to have the caffeine dripping down my veins? What do I want the most? When faced with decisions, what we want the most always wins. And this man encounters Jesus, and the primary question running through this text is, what do you want the most? Do you want to love and put your hopes and your trust in your possessions? Or do you want to love and put your hopes and your trust in Jesus? 
That's the cost of discipleship. And so the rich young ruler walks in and asks Jesus a question. He kneels before him. He shows proper reverence to the rabbi and very genuinely is seeking an answer to his question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus could have spelled it out for him, right? Um, he spells it out for people all throughout the Gospels. In fact, the, the Gospel of Mark where this is at, the very introduction is very spelled out. I've, I've come proclaiming the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. What, you want to know what you've got to do to have eternal life? Repent and believe. Um, two weeks ago, when we looked at Nicodemus' story. He's very explicit. You've got to be born again. And you've got to remember the story of Moses and the bronze serpent. And that being an example of, of Jesus being lifted high. You have to look and believe. But for some reason, Jesus here wants to swerve. He doesn't want to answer his question. And he asks what in response, if you're looking at the text. Why do you call me good? Are you here, rich young man, because you're interested if I'm useful for you? Or are you actually calling me good? And so the question for us is, do you actually call Jesus good? Is Do you actually, as you look at that chart, do you call Jesus kind? Or is he indulgent, there to kind of let you do you? Is he absent? Is he authoritative? See, Jesus encounters this man and is sniffing something out. Um, he's like a good airport cop, uh, airport cop dog, sorry, <laughs> waiting for uh, the American customs folks coming back from Amsterdam. I mean, that dog is busy. He's just sniffing something out. You know, I haven't had pot in my possession for 10 years, and I still get nervous when I see those dogs. They're like sniffing. I'm like, I hope, don't come for me. Jesus is like this, this like cop dog sniffing this man out, and he's sniffing out his heart. Why do you call me good? And he says, you know the commands. And then he goes and he rattles off a list. But in reality, what's going on is he's catching this man in his act. This guy's just wanting Jesus to be a notary. He just wants Jesus to sign off on what he's done and to tell him that there's anything else he needs to do. He has no desire to be with Jesus. This man has no desire to love and hope in and walk with Jesus, who is the only way to eternal life. He only wants to do things for God. He understands his relationship with God primarily about what we do for him. And so Jesus plays his game and he, and he throws out the Ten Commandments. And, you know, my guess is all the Gospels just pick up bits and pieces of what's truly said. I bet he goes through the whole thing. And then he starts adding in these other commands. And so here we see, you know, do not steal, do not commit adultery, don't murder, don't bear. Those are ten commandments. Honor your father and mother. We know those. Exodus 20. But then he references this weird one, do not defraud. And you can almost kind of feel him getting anxious. You know, in the Matthew, Matthew's account of the same interaction, he says, and you know the other one, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, he's getting a little anxious. And the man um, responds with what? I've kept all these since my youth. There's my other chart. I have two charts tonight. Um, and so the PowerPoint's going out tonight. Um, and he says, I've kept these since my youth. And, and we might read that and think that that's actually hard to believe. 
but let's not actually jump to that conclusion because um, here's the thing. In this man's life, um, it's actually possible to live a sinless life. Um, for most really serious Torah observers, for really serious Jews and Pharisees, they actually see themselves as blameless because they have a very shallow understanding of sin. <clears throat> um, Paul, for example, in, in, in one of his letters, he says, as to the law, I was blameless. And he actually meant that. He wasn't lying. Um, it's because because they see a, they have a very shallow understanding of sin. This this book has been very helpful for me. Um, or th- this concept is by a man named Robert Mulholland, and he and he describes these four layers of our sin. All of us. There's first the top layer, and this is what the Jews understood, and they had they had down, or what he describes as gross sins, not like Ew, gross, but like explicit outward rebellious actions against God. These are very, this is the declared will of God. We know not to do these things. Don't murder anybody. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie about your neighbor. Don't worship. And the list goes on. These are explicit sins. You know you should not do this, but you're going to do it. That's gross. That's a gross sin. Second are conscious sins. Um, these go a little bit, le- these go a little bit deeper and they were pervasive in, in the time of, of, of the first century and they're also pervasive for us. These are, Conscious sins, you think and you probably think they're wrong, but culture has accepted them. So you kind of go on your way and you don't really think twice about it. They're still not the way of Jesus. So, like, let's think about binging shows. Man, if you're like watching four hours of something a night, that's probably not the way of Jesus. You know, if you're just addicted to your phone and don't care about it, that's super culturally acceptable. But you're, you're, you're really you're actually not loving your neighbor very well when you do that. You're actually sinning. You're not practicing the Sabbath. And some of you might go, what's the Sabbath? That's my point. You're not fasting. You're being materialistic. I I should be using we. We're gossiping about our friends. That's sin. But it's culturally acceptable, so it's fine to you. You're watching dirty movies or shows. Well, other people watch them too, so who cares? You brag about yourself. You're a boastful person. You tell white lies. These are conscious sins. And for the Jew and for this man, he actually has kept these. He's not falling prey to what culture has deemed okay. And he's not in any sort of gross, explicit, do not commit adultery, don't murder folk sort of sin. But then it gets real. These are unconscious sins. This gets at our motivation. You can do the right outward thing with the wrong motivation. I could be up here right now. And maybe what I really want, because I have so many daddy wounds, is I really just want you to approve of me and think I'm awesome. Right? That would be doing a right thing, preaching the gospel for a really wrong, terrible idea. That In that situation, it actually would just be using you to make me feel better. And we do that. We do the right thing for the wrong reason. We're a super, super nice, compassionate person, but really we just are doing that because we want to be seen as super nice and compassionate. Last are faulty trust structures, um, what I typically describe as idols. These are a wrong attachment. These are deceitful emotional systems of happiness. These are things that we fall prey for that we're certain will make us fulfilled. This is stuff like the approval of others, being famous, being successful, being wealthy, being beautiful enough, being moral, being pure enough. You know, the most damning God, I believe, out there right now is the purity God. If you can just be pure enough, then you'll be okay. And we all fall for it. You'll never be pure enough. 
You can worship the idol of purity all day. You'll never be okay. But if you worship God, you'll become made pure. We, we, we worship this, this, the idol of comfort and wealth and success. So for the, for the Jew walking in here, this man has got the top two layers down. But what does Jesus do? He gets to the deep layered stuff and he does the same thing for you and for me and for all of us. I love this line as it transitions. He says he looks at him and he loves him. He's kind to him. What's my next move? He's going to be firm and warm. And he says, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And then you can come follow me. That's the cost of discipleship to Jesus. And it's a really good thing. Because the creator of your heart and your mind and your body, he wants all of it. You know, one of the, the reasons I don't really give much application, um, you might go to your other church, or not, not other church, this is not a church. You might go to church on Sunday and your preachers give you a lot of application. Um, here's why I don't do that. Um, because I know you. Um, I know that you're all hardworking, extremely pragmatic people. I've told some of you this before. This university is discipling you to become busybodies. And you're going to be, you're going to be cranked out of the system. You're going to be a great servant hearted person. You're going to be a great leader and you're going to know how to do, 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 do. And then we take that mindset. And we come to Jesus and we're like, just tell me what to do. Someone tell me what to do. Because that anxiety just needs relief. So I don't give you that much to do. Because Jesus actually just wants you to be. Um, and the reality is the only way you'll actually do anything with him with a right motive and with a pure heart is if you understand that. And Jesus rattles everyone, everyone in the, the social world, everyone on this campus. He rattles those who think more conservatively and those who think more progressively. You know, if there are tendencies, the, the tendency of the progressive person is to be discipled by an indulgent Jesus. And maybe that's because you're actually just worshiping a particular trait of God instead of God. For example, maybe you worship God's compassion. That's not worshiping all of God. That's just worshiping a trait. And he's got a lot of them. Maybe you're becoming more concerned about being seen as compassionate so that you might be accepted. Maybe there's that, that underlying root idol going on. Instead, of, instead, what Jesus is concerned about is because he's kind is for you to be a whole person and to be faithful to him in all of your life. You'll never be compassionate enough. Um, you know, the most compassionate man to ever walk the earth was put to death. Um, maybe the, the tendency of the conservative-minded folks, maybe your desire is so rooted in people just taking moral responsibility. Get the government out of our business so we can be free and we can work hard. And maybe you've just become an authoritative jerk. And discipleship to Jesus looks like having eyes to see the poorest and the most vulnerable around you. You know, I remember my pastoral counseling professor, he, he, he told this example. He's like, I feel like my call is just to balance people out. 
um, in the, the, the scale of firmness and, 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 and compassion and warmth. It says, like, take this for example. I get a call from a mom, and her son's just been arrested and put in jail and will be there for seven days unless I go pick him up. What should I do, Pastor? He says, I'll always say, what do you think you should do? And then she, he sees her heart right there. Like, I, I, well, I think I should go pick him up. He's like, I think you should let him stay. Or on the other end, he's like, screw him. One day, if he just learns his lesson, I'm going to let him stay. He says, you know what? I think you should go pick him up. You know, if your heart has a tendency towards compassion without firmness, or your heart has a tendency with firmness without compassion, the discipleship of Jesus balances us out. Because the reality is, is it's not primarily here about giving to the poor. Um, you know, Jesus or Judas, you know, who Judas is, betrays Jesus. Um, he was actually mad early on and, and they're walking together that Jesus would let this woman anoint his feet with perfume. And what's he say? He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, a year's wages, and given to the poor? Judas has a great heart for the poor. It was super far from God. Now, being rich is not the problem here. If it is, guess what? We're all doomed. All of us. But it's not. Job was wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Solomon was uber wealthy. But what's the problem? It's loving your riches that gets you into so much trouble. Um, same with loving really anything. Loving your appearance. Um, loving, loving your status, loving your wisdom, loving your intellect, lo- loving your, your personal autonomous freedom. That's where it gets you into trouble. But you cannot serve two masters. You gotta either hate the one and love the other or one, or you, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Um, Paul says in 1st Timothy, those who desire, this is a heart thing, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not the, not the possession of it, the love of money, looking to money for your hope and your value and your worth, the love of money is the root of all kind of evil. Elsewhere, Jesus says in Mark 4, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfaithful. Jesus is coming after your heart. It's about what you want. It's about what you love, what you desire. Do you want Jesus or do you want something else? If you want something else, it's impossible for you to be a disciple. It's impossible. It's as impossible as a camel going through a tiny eye of a needle. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. It's possible for your heart to change. It really is. He teaches us the, the same thing in Luke 14. He says, if anyone were to come after me, he's got to hate his father and mother and wife and children. It does not mean be a jerk. Yes, even hate his own life. Unless you're willing to do that, you cannot be my disciple. Whoever's not, whoever's not willing to bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's the cost. Okay, so what's the benefit? It's a little shorter. We're almost done. Um, what does Jesus say is the benefit? 
if you look at the end of this passage, the last, the last three verses, he says, there's no one who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or children or land for the, my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Um, many deceitful and wicked people have taken this passage and turned it into this gross gospel message of give me your money and you'll receive a hundredfold. And they've, they have absolutely duped many people. And they're bringing that garbage across the world. And we're praying that it will end. That's not what this passage means. The benefit is that, here's the benefit. You want to know the benefit of discipleship? You get God. You get the Father. You get the Son. You get the Holy Spirit. And you get His church. You get His mothers. You get new mothers and new fathers and new brothers and new sisters. You get God and you get His people. The dividing wall of hostility which once plagued the Roman Empire was broken down by the blood of Jesus and peace was brought by these people. This is the hope that we have. This is the promise that we live in. Now, the other night, Maggie and I were, were in a fight um, and, and I was angry and I sinned and I, I said things I wish I wouldn't have said. And I shut down. And so what did I do? I'm about to sound like a 12-year-old. I went up to our bed and I built a barrier between us. I put a pillow here and a pillow on top and a pillow on top. It's not the first time I've done that. Um, Don't try this at home. I didn't want anything to do with her. I was in the pain of my isolation. All I wanted was to be right. All I wanted was for her to see how right I was. And it weighed me down. It got me nowhere. It got me isolated on my side of the bed. And then I breathed and I calmed down and I said with all the warmth I could muster up in that moment, which wasn't much, I don't want to talk about this right now, but I'm sorry. And you know what happened inside? Like physically my body changed. Um, The barrier of the pillows resembled this barrier in my heart and it broke down. I took the pillows out. The message of Christianity is that because of, since the entrance of sin to this world, we are on one side of the bed and God is on the other and there is a barrier that stands between us. We are at odds with him. We just want to be right. And we want him to know that we're right. And we look at ourselves and we look at our things and our possessions and our self-made identity and our accomplishments and our sexuality and our wealth and all these things because we're stuck on our side of the bed. We've got nothing else to hope in. It's been said that every, and I've maybe said this before, every knock at a brothel is a knock seeking for God. What you really want from your money is God. 
It's the good life that only God can provide you. What you really want in your sexuality is the love that only God can give you. What you really want in your approval from others is the heavenly approval of a voice that says, I am so pleased in you. What you really want in your pursuit towards these things and these things is to be at rest and at peace. And the message of Christianity tells us that Jesus left the riches and the comforts of heaven to tear down this bridge of hostility that stands between us and God. And that through his bloody death and his miraculous resurrection, we now have all that he possesses. That we are made at peace with God. And that we can live with him. And that we get united to new mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. You know, many years ago, I'm going to end with this quote. A movement began. Um, with words preached, and this was a passion conference, um, and it was from a sermon titled, Don't Waste Your Life. And the sermon began this way. It says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in your world. But you do have to know one great thing that matters. And then be willing to live for him and die for him. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effects of the pebbles you drop into the waves to reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or a high EQ. You don't have to have good looks or good riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or fine school. You just have to know one great, majestic, unchanging, simple, glorious thing and be set on fire for him. Then your life will count. This is the message that the Apostle Paul proclaims in his letter to the Philippians church. You know, this man, some people actually think perhaps that the rich young ruler was actually the Apostle Paul. Maybe not. It's someone like him. He was a good man. He was blameless in the law. He clung to his intellect. He clung to his cultural status. He clung to the approval of his peers for his righteousness. And then he met Jesus. And he was mastered by one thing. And that one thing really mattered to him. And he felt the warmth and compassion of this one thing. And he listened to the firmness and the truth of this one thing. And he says this, I count now everything else is lost because of the worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of many things and I count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Is that your cry tonight? Is that your cry tonight? You count everything else as lost so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I hope that it is. Let's pray to that end. Father, you are good to us and you have sent your son to display your love and your desire to be reconciled to your people who have wandered away. And we continue to wander, 
we continue to believe that other things will give us what we want. That our possessions and in our possessions lie the truth of fulfillment. But that is such a deceitful thing. Lord, would we leave this place laying down what we have and being blown away by the fact that we have you. May that be enough. Lord, we need your help. We need your forgiveness. We need your mercy and your warmth, and we need your firmness and your truth. We pray this in the name.